Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can confess our sins if necessary, 1 John 1, 9, so that we can sort of clear the cobwebs out of our minds. I don't know whether it's the Christmas season and everybody's been partying, but I don't ever recall seeing such a crowd of people who needed another hour to asleep. <laughs> I mean, usually there's one or two people out there that look like they could have stayed in bed another hour or two, but... But I don't think I see anybody out, well, maybe one or two that look like they got enough rest last night. Everybody else looks like they could have stayed in bed about an hour or two more. So maybe we need a little extra shot of uh, prayer this morning for concentration and focus. Otherwise, I'll be uh, uh, preaching to a group of people that are sound asleep. Just don't don't snore. If you're If you're tired, we know that you need some rest, and that's always a little... Grace, sometimes the only time people can get a good sleep is when they're here in class, but just don't snore and disturb anybody else. I've seen that happen. You know, one of the funny, I'm getting sidetracked already, one of the funniest times I ever had, so you got to wake everybody up a little bit, I was, uh, I had gone back to Baraka Church to visit, and this was in 1988, I think, and there were, uh, or 89, and there were a couple of celebrities in town that weekend, and or that that particular Bible class night, Hal Lindsey was there, and there was a guy, I can't remember his name, Colonel Howard, I believe, and he was a Medal of Honor winner and, and had just flown in from somewhere in Asia. And so uh, Pastor Theme had all of us sit up on the platform in front of the congregation. For those of you who haven't been there, that's an auditorium that seats about a 1,000 people. And so... We were all sitting there in front of the entire uh, congregation, and uh, Pastor Theme was teaching Bible class. And about a third of the way through Bible class, see, Howard hadn't had any sleep in like 36 hours flying in from Asia. About halfway through Bible class, all of a sudden you start hearing this very low <laughs> coming from just on the other side of the pulpit. And uh, Bobby Thame was sitting next to uh, Colonel Howard. He said he kept elbowing him, but he was gone. <laughs> so, you know, it's one thing to be sitting out in the congregation and fall asleep and snore a little bit. It's another thing to be sitting up there on the pulpit in front of everybody on the platform sound asleep and snoring. So, well, now that everybody's laughed a little bit and gotten their juices going, maybe we can uh, get ready. So we'll... Uh, Start off with a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to come before your throne of grace this morning. Father, we recognize that all that we have and all that we are is due to your grace, that there is nothing that we have in life that is due to our own efforts, our own resources, our own talents, but that ultimately all things come from you and are to be used in return for your honor and glory. Father, we gather this morning as a body of believers in order to uh, have the highest form of worship, which is to listen to the teaching of your word, to listen to the truth of your word, to be informed how you think and how you would have us to think. There is nothing more important, nothing more serious, nothing more vital in this life than to be able to think as you think and to look at life through a divine viewpoint. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to worship, to gather together, to hear the teaching of your word. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation, preserve our freedoms, especially now as we anticipate going to war with Iraq. There are uh, many vital issues in relation to, to that war that concern us. We pray that you would protect our troops. We pray that you would give us good intelligence. We pray that the enemy would be confounded, that we would discover whatever secrets he is trying to hide, and it would be clear to the world that this is a just war. Father, we pray that you would protect those from this congregation and from those those who are tapers uh, from this congregation that will be uh, perhaps sent into the war zone. We pray that you would watch over them and protect them. I know of a number of uh, young men, officers, and enlisted that are on tapes from this ministry that uh, are on orders to go overseas. We pray that you would watch over them and protect them. Watch over their families while they are gone. Give them an opportunity to trust you and rely upon your, your grace and your comfort during this time. Father, now as we go to your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, see how they relate to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Last time I pointed out as we began our study of this chapter that this really introduces a section that goes from 8 through 11 and the there and a broader section that goes down through chapter 14 and the main theme or a main idea that undergirds this entire section of doctrine is going to be love love specifically is going to be described in chapter 13 it's going to be a fundamental issue in the problem uh, of how the Corinthians are using and abusing spiritual gifts, but it also underlies the use and abuse of the Lord's table. It underlies the problem in terms of the role of men and women in the worship of the church, and it is also going to be very, a vital issue in the subject at hand in chapter eight, chapters 8 through 10, which is the problem of doubtful things. Now let me define what doubtful things are. Doubtful things relates to decisions that we have to make in life, whether or not to participate in certain activities, whether or not to enjoy certain things that do not involve a specifically moral, immoral, or sinful choice. There are many things in life that are good. Other things are better. And many times as you mature in the Christian life, you'll discover that the decisions you have to make may not necessarily involve a choice between that which is sinful or that which is immoral and that which is good. Now, unfortunately, 
We live in a world, and there's a tendency of the sin nature in some people and some personalities to always want to cast everything within the framework of that which is good and that which is evil. And therefore, they want to assign every decision, everything that we participate in in life to either the category of sin or the category of of uh, good and that which is uh, obedient to the Lord. But the Bible clearly recognizes that there are many things in life, many decisions that we make in life that don't necessarily involve a choice between that which is sinful and that which is not. We have cultures that have created various uh, cultural uh, taboos. You have religious taboos, but you also have have just cultural taboos, certain ways of doing things, certain mores that that uh, prohibit certain practices or certain practices are looked down upon, and they may or may not have anything to do with, with religious things. For example, in some Arab cultures, it's a polite thing to belch loudly after a meal, and in a, a Western society, that's frowned upon. Well, see, that's not a sinful thing necessarily, although some people may think so. That's a, a cultural norm and, um, and doesn't have anything to do necessarily with a religious expression. But we have to recognize that there are certain, uh, certain practices, certain things that we all are involved in that are, in one sense, morally neutral. Yet, there are times when we have to decide whether or not we are going to be involved in these things. And the issue here that underlies it, we're going to see uh, some, some different principles as we go through here. The one that, that Paul begins to emphasize at the begin, very beginning is the principle of impersonal love, the law of love. In verse chapter 8, verse 1, he states, Now concerning things offered to idols... We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And here he lays the groundwork as to the basic problem in Corinth is that you always have the, the young believer or the arrogant believer who knows that something is okay, but and that there's no problem associated with it. He has a certain academic knowledge, but he in his arrogance is just going to go ahead and assert his right to that as opposed to recognizing that there are some times when we exercise our freedom that may have a negative impact on those around us. And so that brings in the overriding principle of the law of love. Now, what is the law of love? The law of love is a spiritual law based on consideration for others. And now we can take that and expand that in a number of different directions. That's a principle that undergirds the whole concept of etiquette. Now, etiquette is something that is more of an establishment principle that is for believer and unbeliever. And the reason you have laws of etiquette and rules of etiquette is so that people, it's a recognition that people are basically sinful or selfish, self-absorbed, and rules of etiquette have been devised in all cultures in order that people who are basically selfish and self-absorbed can get along with one another in a civil manner. Now, in the Christian realm, we have the law of love that we are to consider others, especially immature believers, and that which might be harmful to immature believers. It is an application of the principle of John 13, 33, and 34, that the believer is to love one another, that is, other believers, just as Christ loved us. So that becomes the standard. 
and we will develop that and its application in detail as we go through this chapter uh, more and more because there were times when the Lord clearly uh, modified what he did in light of certain people who were around him, usually those who were growing and positive to his teaching, and at other times he seemed to just sort of rub somebody's nose in something, and that was when he was dealing with legalists like Pharisees. So one of the things we're going to see is there is a distinction at times, and you have to have maturity to understand the distinction. When you go ahead and assert your freedom in the face of legalistic opposition, and at other times when you are willing to adapt and willing to limit your freedom in order to, uh, because of a positive impact on other believers. So what we're dealing with here is a realm of flexibility, and unfortunately there's some people who are just too rigid in their thinking. They can't understand that on uh, in one particular instance, it may be okay to do something, and six hours later, it's not okay to do it, and that you have to evaluate your surroundings, evaluate the people around you, and and make a decision based on certain other man- manifestations, primarily the law of love. So he introduces the law of love and contrasts it to knowledge, and the knowledge that he contrasts it to here is not epinosis, but gnosis. And we've seen that there are different words in the Greek text for knowledge, and we have to understand how we come to know. See, this is going to relate to, in some ways, to what I'm teaching in the second hour, and this is one of the most important questions that men have asked down through the centuries, that is, what is truth? And how do we know what truth is? And as believers, we know truth because God has revealed it to us. Now, let me review a minute before we get into our difference between gnosis and epinosis. We have to go back to the basic understanding of or asking the question of how we, how we know truth. This is so important to understand because this question and how you answer this question really underlies every issue in life. It should how you deal with this really under, under, underscores how you handle your checkbook every month, how you handle your credit cards, how you handle uh, uh, yourself at the voting booth when you vote at elections how you handle yourself in your family life, how you uh, handle yourself as a wife and as a husband in your marital responsibilities, how you handle yourself as a parent in training your children up to uh, honor and love the Lord, ultimately goes back to this issue of truth because this is the issue of ultimate authority. How do you know what is right and what is wrong? What is the right thing to do and what is the wrong thing to do? And in human viewpoint, there have been three solutions developed as to how you know truth. And the first is known technically as rationalism. And in rationalism, the emphasis is on human thought and reasoning, and that ultimately we start with our own thinking And we start with first principles of thought. This was typical in Platonism and then in the modern form under Descartes. And it's developed through the rigorous use 
of reason and logic. The second system is known as empiricism. And empiricism emphasizes experience. Now, it's going to emphasize experience in a different way than mysticism will. It emphasizes that we learn through sense knowledge, what we see, what we taste, what we touch, what we feel, what we learn is the scientific method, how you, you observe certain things and draw conclusions from them, and that, too, functions on the basic method, modus operandi of reason and logic. The third human viewpoint system is mysticism, which is a reaction to rationalism and empiricism. See, often in, uh, in more popular discussion and popular conversation, rationalism and empiricism are often combined together and just spoken of as one or the other. We'll talk about you being too rationalistic. In other words, you're just using logic too much in either, in either one of these systems or a combination of these two systems. And mysticism is always a reaction in history to the bankruptcy of human reason and human experience. Human reason and human experience can only get us so far. Science can only take us so far, whether it is an exact science, such as physics or biology, geology, they can only take us so far, or whether it is one of the social sciences, such as psychology or sociology or whatever, because all of these systems, rationalism, empiricism, and mysticism, all operate on faith, and the, but the object of faith is human ability to accurately interpret the data whether it's the data of thought or whether it's the data supplied by empiricism or just the, uh, uh, the data uh, derived from mysticism. Mysticism is based on intuition, just sort of, I know it's true because it just, it's just common sense. You just know it's true. You haven't thought it through. It's not necessarily something you could go out and prove empirically. It's just, I know it's true. And this is typical in many religious contexts where people just have some, some emotional experience with God or they just have some emotional experience and they think it's God. They just jump to that conclusion and it just seems so real and it just seems so so obvious that that's what it was. And, and usually you find a person like this in some sort of turmoil in their life. Maybe they're going through some health crisis. Maybe they're going through some emotional crisis. Maybe they're depressed. Maybe they're having problems in their marriage, or maybe they just haven't figured out what life is all about, and all of a sudden something happens. I've spoken with people who, who went through some sort of a healing process, and I'm not saying maybe they weren't healed. There's a tremendous amount of things we don't know about the relationship of the mind to the body in terms of healing. This is one reason that they have to take into account what is called the placebo effect in, in uh, testing drugs because 50-55% of the people who are given the sugar pill, the non-drug in a test case, will show some kind of improvement just from taking a sugar pill. And that's the impact of just the, the mental attitude on the whole process. So when you uh, see somebody goes to a so-called faith healer, whether it's in Pentecostalism, vineyard movement, or Hinduism, or, or some other system, some shaman, and they say, oh, I was healed of something, then... I don't doubt that they had some experience, and I don't even doubt that they were, they were legitimately healed in some cases. But it may not have anything to do with the, whatever the ritual was that they went through. It's just a fact of their own, their own thinking and their own mentality. But because they've had this overwhelming experience, like 
Muhammad had when he thought that the angel Gabriel appeared to him. Incidentally, prior to that, he was going through uh, depression and various other uh, emotional problems in his own life. And at the very beginning, according to Arab sources, uh, initially... He uh, he even thought that he might be demon-possessed when he had this experience. But his wife convinced him otherwise, and uh, so he went on to receive these revelations from Gabriel. In other words, human intuition, he thought that man had enough information to be able to accurately determine whether this was God or a demon, whether this was an angel or a demon. And that's what happens in mysticism, and in all of these systems, actually, is man thinks that he has enough objectivity, enough clarity, and enough knowledge to be able to accurately interpret whatever his experience is, whether it's experience with his own reasoning faculties and rationalism, whether experience with data such as fossils in, in science. You know, that's exactly what goes on in, 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 in evolution is the scientist goes out and has an experience with the fossils. You know, and then he interprets that data. Now, he doesn't have an emotional experience, but he finds the fossils in a particular strait, in a particular condition, and on the basis of that experience, he derives certain conclusions. But his undergirding presupposition is that man has enough knowledge to be able to accurately interpret that within the broader framework. Now, we can, uh, in, in, in a smaller framework, we can make some accurate interpretations, and in many cases, we can make a lot of accurate interpretations, but the problem with empiricism is it's based on a number of uh, factors that continue to be the same. And so we have incidents one, incident two, incident three, incident four, incident five, incident six, and each time we get the same result. The problem with empiricism is if you extrapolate that, there's always the possibility that X plus one factor will occur, experience will occur, that will completely invalidate or change your interpretation of everything else. So there's that's the inherent weakness in empiricism and rationalism. And as believers, as Christians, we think that knowledge begins, the foundation of knowledge is in revelation, God speaking to man. That, uh, for example, in the Garden of Eden, Adam could properly interpret a lot of things about the trees and about the animals that were in the Garden of Eden. He could, he could come up with a certain percentage of correct deductions based on his observations in the garden. But he could not, on the basis of either reason alone or on the basis of empiricism or a combination of the two or on the basis of mysticism, come to the conclusion that if he ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would die spiritually. He could only know that if God revealed it to him. Therefore, his understanding of the vegetation in the garden was always limited, and to that degree it was wrong because it didn't have the most important piece of data which would give proper interpretation to everything, and that piece of data would only come through revelation. So he could, when God spoke and gave him that, that information, then he could accurately interpret and understand his surroundings in a, in a holistic way. So revelation is the key. God speaks, and we believe God speaks in such a way that we can clearly understand what he has communicated. He speaks to be understood. He doesn't speak in 
riddles. He doesn't speak in ways that are designed to obfuscate his information so that we have to guess at what it means, so that we have to go through various kinds of uh, uh, internal uh procedures in order to get in the right mindset, etc., in order to understand. He communicates in order to be understood, and so the authority, therefore, comes from uh, God the Holy Spirit, who authenticates the Word as it is being taught and as it was revealed, and revelation is understood through reason and logic, but that reason and logic is is built on the presupposition of revelation, whereas reason and logic and rationalism and empiricism operates in an independent way from God's revelation. So God reveals so that man can know truth. Now, truth comes in two, two forms, as it were, and this is indicated by your Greek words, gnosis and epinosis. And epnosis has a range of meanings, but in a context such as this where you're drawing some, some contrasts, it has to do with just raw information and knowledge, academic truth. It doesn't have to do with a full knowledge, an experiential understanding uh, of knowledge, which is what is emphasized by the word epinosis. So how then do we go through the process of learning the word? We call this the grace learning spiral. Here is a depiction of the mentality of the soul. As the word talks about the mentality of the soul, it uses the Greek word nous. Nous means the mind, the thinking part of the soul. And inside the mind there is an area called the cardia or the heart. Now this is, this is not used in a metaphor that's related to the, the biological pump inside the chest, but it has to do with the way we use the word heart all the time. We talk about the heart of a matter. You go down to the store and you buy hearts of palms. Uh, the heart refers to that which is at the core, that which is at the center of something. And so the cardia has to do with that thinking part of the soul where your core beliefs, your core value system, your con the core values, the core norms and standards of your soul are stored. Now, in learning Bible doctrine, the pastor-teacher is going to communicate spiritual truth. But as we saw in our study of 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man or the unsaved man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. So they are going to be uh, learned through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells every single believer. The Holy Spirit makes doctrine understandable it is the holy spirit who makes spiritual who interprets spiritual word, spiritual concepts with spiritual words he makes it understandable but we have to exercise our volition in order to understand that doctrine he doesn't understand it for us if you put it in the metaphor of chewing he he he's like a good cook and he takes that piece of, of maybe tough steak that that uh, you have to chew up a little bit, and he's going to tenderize it, and he's going to pound it so that it is very palatable, uh, much like a, a mother may take uh, the carrots and bananas and everything up, mash it all up so that a baby can then uh, swallow the food and can then eat the food. He makes it understandable, but he doesn't eat it for us, okay? 
He makes it understandable, but he doesn't understand it for us. We have to think about it. That involves what the Old Testament calls meditation. You have to go home. It's not just a matter of taking notes. It's a matter of reflecting on those things, looking at the Scriptures. That's one reason I try to put most of the Scriptures up on the overhead is so that you see what the Scripture says, not just running off a grocery list of Scripture references, but so that you see what the Word says, because I believe is, is the Word of God is the truth of God. It's the truth that has power, and that comes through the Word. So we, we think about it. We exercise our volition to think about it and understand it, and that's when it becomes gnosis. We have to understand something before we can know it or before we can believe it. And once we, it becomes gnosis, then we have a decision as to whether or not we're going to believe it or not. We're going to trust it. This is God's word. God has spoken. This is reality. And at that point, we believe it. And God, the Holy Spirit, transfers it into our cardia, our heart, as epinosis. This is usable doctrine. It's like uh, when you've eaten a good meal and, the, and, and that food has been digested and broken down by the enzymes in the stomach and has been converted into uh, sugar and it's taken out, sugar and other chemicals are taken out to all the cell structure of the body through the, through the blood, bloodstream, then it is usable energy. But, you know, you have a choice then whether you're going to exercise and use it in one way or whether you're going to sit on the couch, watch TV, and use it in another way. And so that's where volition comes in again in terms of application. Just because you have epinosis doctrine in the soul doesn't mean you're going to apply it. Application comes only under the Holy Spirit, and once again you have to exercise your volition in order to apply it. And that involves principles such as the law of love. So knowledge is an abstract knowledge in the Greek sense. So we always have to go back to understand the, concept, the, the context of uh, Corinth, and that was that they, under, they looked at knowledge as something that was abstract. Now, we've inherited that same approach from the Greeks. We are a lineal descendant of Greco-Roman type of thinking. We think of knowledge as something that is abstract and something that exists independent. We think of truth as something that is abstract and independent. We think of... Um, of uh, uh, that all we have to do is learn these things and we'll be okay, but the scriptures take it to a, a different level and they introduce the concept of, of love, that it's not just gnosis, it's epinosis. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Then Paul goes on to say, and as we saw last time, that if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing as he ought to know. Simple gnosis is not enough. You have to go to the next stage of epinosis. And when we get epinosis, we come to be, we learn doctrine. Doctrine motivates us to love God. We love God by knowing His commandments and keeping His commandments, as we've seen in our study of John. And when we keep His commandments, that's application of doctrine. The Holy Spirit then works in us while we are learning doctrine and applying doctrine to produce spiritual growth. In spiritual growth and because of our study of doctrine, we learn who God is, what He has done for us, and then we love God. And as we love God, we it continues that spiral, that cycle, where we are uh, loving God and we are keeping His commandments. 
Now, that's the emphasis in, in those first three verses, that as we come to know God, then God knows us, and that reminds us, this is Paul's way of using, talking about that reciprocal relationship that we have with God. So these first three verses set up the context of love and epinosis versus just academic knowledge. Then he is going to start tackling the question of doubtful things in Corinth. Now, usually, and we all know this, we've talked about this in the past, when you talk about doubtful things, the first thing that usually comes into people's minds because of the background of American Christianity, it's usually applied to things such as uh, whether or not it's okay to drink wine or alcohol or, or smoking or watching television, going to movies. Uh, if you are of an, other, of an older generation, then uh, it was more common to apply it in those, those ways. I know when I was in high school and college, I ran into, into uh, folks who came from uh, Bible colleges where they were prohibited from even watching television. They couldn't watch movies, and these various other taboos were placed upon them as part of the spiritual life. And that's not as true today as it was back then. In fact, a few years ago, I read a survey. I read this survey in the late 80s, and it was a comparison. It was done by Christianity Today, and a survey was taken among evangelical Christians in 1951 that where about 90% of Christians surveyed said that it was a sin to drink alcoholic beverages. By 1988, a survey of evangelical Christians produced the results that 90% of Christians, same figure, 90% did not think it was a sin to drink alcoholic beverages. Now, that's an incredible cultural shift right there from 90% against to 90% for. Maybe the church is becoming alcoholic. but um, I think part of that is due to, to, to two things. I think it's due to, uh, positively we might want to say, well, it's due to, to a better understanding of grace, but if you look at the broader, broader context of what's going on in church history in America, I don't think so. I think it really reflects more the permissiveness of the society as a whole as opposed to uh, a greater understanding of grace inside the church. But as we go through this study of doubtful things, I'm going to uh, take it in some new directions because uh, I just want to make sure that everybody's challenged a little bit nobody falls asleep in the morning. Before we get into this, we need to understand a couple of things about the background in Corinth. First of all, it is a culture that is steeped in idolatry, and this is true for all of the ancient world and the whole broader context of, of, the, uh, of both the Old and New Testament is that the believers operated in a culture that was steeped in other religious systems. It was in the Old Testament, it was often, uh, they operated in, in cultures that were uh, steeped in fertility worship. And it, the same was true in the New Testament, of course, in the in the mystery religions. But it's it per, it was pervasive in society. Uh, everywhere they went, there were the the icons, and there were the was the evidence of the cultural religion of the Greeks and the Romans. A few years ago, there was a a um, an exhibit at at the art museum in Worcester of the mosaics from Antioch. 
and I was impressed as I walked through all of the displays. They had floors and they had wall paintings and all of these different mosaics that, that decorated the homes and decorated the public buildings in Antioch of Syria in roughly the same time as the New Testament in the, from about the first century A.D. through the third century A.D. And what struck you was everywhere you looked, there were these mosaics of the gods, of, of, of Zeus and of, of uh Hera and of all of the various Greek gods and goddesses, and so that you just put yourself in the place of Paul and Barnabas and Timothy and Titus. Everywhere they went, they would be invited into somebody's home, and, and very likely that person had something in the mosaics on the wall or on the floor or the artwork was dedicated or pictured things that had to do with the uh, Greek, what we call Greek mythology and the Greek religion of the day. It was pervasive. Everywhere you went, you were being hit with information, pictures, icons, uh, and, and, and the, the function of the temples to, to Greek pagan religion. You couldn't escape it. It was everywhere you went, and yet... We don't necessarily get that picture from the New Testament, but that's what we discover from, from archaeology. I mean, there's not a conflict there, but I think by understanding that, you realize that, that when we live in, a wor- in our world today, in America, where we have a, a cultural history of Christianity, uh, it's only been, I think, in the last few years that we're probably hit in a, as hard with paganism as they were in their culture. And I don't think that's the way most Christians look at the New Testament. They think that somehow they were operating in this more benign type of uh, environment. But it was everywhere, tapestries, mosaics that decorated the floors, the dedications and prayers and sacrifices before the public games. Uh, Everywhere you went, you're confronted with the pagan religion of, of Greece and Rome. Second point to remember in terms of background is that nearly everyone you dealt with in business or socially thought in ways influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek religion. This was inescapable if you were just invited over to your to your neighbors or maybe you had an employer or employee that invited you over or you were doing business with a client and you had to go out on a business dinner then that food, the meat that you were served, was more than likely bought down at the butcher shop outside the temple, and it had er- earlier been sacrificed, been part of an animal that was sacrificed to one of the deities, and then this meat was later sold in the temple uh, marketplace. So that everywhere you went, you are, you are operating in the context of a false religious system as a, as a believer. Now, this is, was just as much, just as it was true then, it's true today. Whether we're watching television, whether you're reading a magazine, reading a, uh, whether it's a more erudite magazine or you're just uh, letting your mind vacate with People magazine or whatever it is, art, modern, modern art, uh, films that we go to, and there's just a host of interesting movies we could talk about to illustrate this. Christians are bombarded left and right with paganism. Now, I want you to think about this, because I, I think we think too superficially about this. Every thought, every movie, every book, fiction, uh, let's talk about fictional book, every, uh, uh, every composition in music, whether you're talking jazz, blues, rock, country, whatever it is, 
All of this, art is an expression of the thinking of the artist, whether it's a physical art, whether it is a, a, a performance art, whether it's uh, music, whatever it is, it, 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 fiction and literature, it's going to reflect the thinking of the, of the individual who is producing it. It's going to say something to some level. Maybe it's, maybe it's minor in some things. It may be very minor in other things. It may not. But it's going to say something, especially if that artist is a thinking person. It's going to say something about their view of, and their ideas about reality. Therefore, whenever you read a fictional book, whenever you go to a movie, whenever you watch some show on TV, you're going to be hit with a number of ideas that are just plain human viewpoint. You can't escape that. It's not, it wasn't any different in, in the time of Christ. So the big question comes, how do you handle this? How do you handle it? Well, there have been, basically there's three responses that have come down through history. The first is isolation and separation. Isolation and separation, where Christians want to isolate themselves completely and separate themselves completely from any influence whatsoever from the world. It's based on a fear of infection. Now, this plays itself out in a number of ways. Some of the more extreme examples we might think of would be uh, the Amish. Uh, they want to just separate themselves completely from anything, from anything modern. In other ways, it expresses itself, for example, in um, some forms of Pentecostalism. And, it's, and this plays itself out in their doctrines of spiritual warfare. And you hear people teach that, uh, oh, if you go into a certain temple that was once the place where, where uh, these uh, pagan deities were worshipped, you may come out and you may pick up a demon. Uh, it's very superstitious. You may go someplace in the, in the east and pick up some, uh, some art object and bring it home and yet it was used at one time in temple ritual and there's a demon associated with it and all of a sudden strange things begin to happen in your home and you read stories of this in various books and you hear testimonies about this and then they had to have somebody come in and perform a deliverance or exorcism to get the demon out of the house that they brought back from India last year and people hear this and they have all kinds of questions, and it wasn't any different in the ancient world, but it's motivated by fear, and it's the idea that I'm just not going to ever be in a position where there's ever going to be any, any, any paganism around me that might, where I might pick up some idea, my kids might just inadvertently pick up some idea, uh, and that, that now we're going to be involved in, in, in something horrible. That's a completely unrealistic view of reality. You know, unless an idea derives from the scripture or is based in the scripture, it is human viewpoint. Human viewpoint is not that which is compatible with scripture. Divine viewpoint is that which comes from scripture. Therefore, human viewpoint is that which does not come from scripture, and you can't support it directly uh, from the scripture. So we can't escape the world. We are in the world. Uh, God, uh, Jesus prayed to God the Father in John 17, but he prayed that he would keep us from the evil one. He would protect us from the evil one. So one extreme is isolation and separation, and this plays itself out in a lot of legalism. The second approach to solving this problem is total acceptance. This is the uh, permissive extreme. Uh, in this situation, which is 
typical of many Christians today. Uh, inevitably, um, uh, what, what they've done is they've so compartmentalized their their relationship to, with God. See, this is one of the things that's happened in, in modernism and in postmodern America is that religion has become something that is personal and subjective, and therefore it's what you have in your own little private life with, with God on Sunday morning, but it really doesn't affect other things in life. And this is true of the way most people think today. Their relationship with God is so sec is so is separated from everything else in life, so that they never try to to relate what they learn from the Bible on Sunday morning to what they do during the rest uh, of their life. For example, uh, Scripture says a tremendous amount on how you handle money, and yet I find that it, it's amazing how many Christians are operating in debt, and yet the Scriptures make it clear that only a fool borrows money that it is not wise to borrow money, we should owe nothing to anyone, that uh, when you get overextended in debt, in credit card debt, that reflects the influence of paganism, materialism, the idea that money and the things money can, can buy uh, provide, can provide happiness and status in life. Then you have the area of politics. It's amazing how many Christians don't, never think about what they learn on Sunday morning in relating the Bible to what they vote for uh, when they go to the polls. Now, we have to recognize that there are really three political positions. I'm going to simplify this a little bit. There's a liberal position, there's a conservative position, and there's a biblical position. Just, be, you know, just because there are many things that conservatives have that, are, that have an affinity with what the Bible says, there are many conservatives out there who are not Christians, didn't, don't have anything to do with Christianity, and they are as much an enemy of many biblical principles as liberals are. But in many ways, conservatives, of course, do have whole positions that are more consistent with what the Bible teaches. So that's why you find many Christians who are oriented towards a more conservative view. But then you have many other Christians that aren't. You have many evangelicals that basically have misinterpreted uh, some, the, the community aspect in, in Acts, and they're out promoting some kind of communism or socialism. Well, socialism dest always destroys personal responsibility. So when you, if you're going to evaluate your political decisions and your political philosophy, you have to start with an understanding of the five divine institutions. And the first divine institution, of course, is personal responsibility and personal accountability. And so any kind of legal, uh, legal system or civil system that somehow shifts personal responsibility and accountability from the individual to government is a position that is contrary to Scripture. Furthermore, we get into the fourth divine institution, which is human government, and uh, human government is the whole principle of human government is based on capital punishment uh, in Genesis chapter 9 in the Noahic Covenant. Now, I always make this, this statement. You have to realize that, that those who are against capital punishment, they usually are for some practical reason. They say, well, it's not practiced fairly. There's clear... Uh, situations where there is abuse, where where the system breaks down. My response to that is always the same. God in his omniscience knew that. God was completely aware in eternity past that man was going to 
unjustly apply the principles of capital punishment. Nevertheless, God still mandated the responsibility. So the issue isn't get rid of capital punishment. It is to try to make it as fair and equitable a practice as possible. And uh, so that involves government. But the role of government is to pr- primarily to protect a nation from external enemies and to protect the citizenry from internal enemies and criminality, and it provide an environment within which freedom can flourish and people can live to out their lives to their fullest potential without being penalized by some oppressive government system or by other other people who are wishing to take advantage of them. Now, when you start breaking down these biblical principles and applying it to certain political parties and to uh, certain politicians, then it should give you a better idea of how to vote. How do you, how does this individual, uh, how does this government handle Israel and the existence of Israel? Are they anti-Semitic or are they pro-Israel? That's, that's perhaps the most important thing because uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, those, God said, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And so if you have a government or you're voting for people who have an anti-Israel mentality, it doesn't matter what else their platform is or what else you want. If they're voting, if they want to go against Israel, God's going to judge this nation. And it, and it doesn't matter if you get school vouchers or you don't get school vouchers or you get tax cuts or you don't get tax cuts. If we're against Israel, then we're going to come under the judgment of God and nothing else will, will really matter. So you have to understand the divine institutions, Israel. You have to understand the biblical principle of war and freedom, that freedom only comes and is secured through military victory. And so if you have government policies that take away from the military, that uh, take away from uh, research and development of weapon systems, then eventually what you're going to have is a weak, weak nation, and we're going to be unable to protect ourselves against terrorists and against uh, any any attack from outside. Now, all of these are key ingredients that we have to think about in terms of evaluating the world around us. So on the one hand, as I said, you have a problem with those who are living in isolation and separation. And on the other hand, you those who are just permissive. Anything's okay. Everything's fine. You know, they've just so compartmentalized their Christianity that it doesn't impact day-to-day decisions from their checkbook to how they vote. Third, the third way in which people try to solve this problem is in the arena of flexibility, and I will call this, for lack of a better term, grace application. This is, I think, the biblical position that the believer lives in a pagan culture, and he can live in a pagan culture and not be influenced by that pagan culture. That's the whole concept of Romans 12:2, that we are to not be conformed to the world. That is the cosmic system, the the culture that's the pagan culture that surrounds you. You're not going to be conformed to the world, but you're going to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're going to live in the world, but not of the world. This means that the believer can enjoy and appreciate the products of the secular pagan culture around them because he realizes that whether it's, uh, uh, whether it's in music or whether it's in art, whether it's in theater, whether it's fictional literature, that every human being is created in the image of God. 
And part of that imageness of God includes imitating God in creativity. And even an unbeliever can imitate God by being creative and producing art. They can be creative in science and in discovery and in, in developing uh, inventions and technology. They can be creative in, in, in theater. And even though their art, their theater, their music may reflect pagan ideas, it is still an operation of their imageness of God. So we can appreciate Art, we can appreciate literature, we can appreciate movies and drama without being sucked into the pagan viewpoint that it represents. And we can appreciate it because it is a product of someone who is exercising their God-given talents and imitating God, even though they are uh, suppressing the truth of God in their own soul in negative volition. So we are not afraid of just somehow going through some situation and picking up human viewpoint ideas and being influenced by this. And I think that should help you when you try to think through application related to a number of different things. And and one of the things, of course, that has come up recently as it comes up every couple of years is, is I think, uh, this, this whole thing with Harry Potter. Now, I'm not going to tell you whether or not you ought to or ought not see a Harry Potter movie or whether you ought to or, not, or ought not let your kids read a Harry Potter book. I've been hit with this so much, I finally broke down. I've read the first three. And um, I think there's a real, what we have to realize is some of the things I've said already. First of all, we live in a pagan world, in a pagan culture, and everything that is produced by the world system is going to, to one degree or another, communicate something about a pagan approach to life. And that includes most, nearly every movie, to one degree or another, whether you're talking about a just a simple action movie like a James Bond movie or even a Western, or whether you're talking about uh, more extreme science fiction movies, everything is going to express something about the, uh, the writer's, the producer's worldview. I think, for example, some of the most um, influential type of movies in this category are some of the science fiction movies that have been very popular lately, the entire Star Trek series, and I'm a tremendous, I've always enjoyed those, the, the television show and the movies, as well as the Star Wars uh, franchise. And the reason I say that is because that I, I have read interviews with Gene Roddenberry. There was a, there was a Volkswagen, I believe it, yeah, it was Volkswagen ran a series of ads on the inside cover of Time magazine in the late 80s. And they would get different celebrities, give some kind of different quote related to the future. And they had a paragraph, usually a paragraph statement from one of these celebrities, and they had one from Gene Roddenberry. And in that, Gene Roddenberry made the comment that I look forward to that day when uh, people are as appalled, uh, that people who are appalled over racism uh, will be just as appalled over people who think there's only there's only one God or one way to God. I mean, it was just a, a bold attack an opposition against Christianity. Gene Roddenberry hated Christianity. He hated biblical Christianity. And if you evaluate what is said in most of those Star Trek movies, they are completely predicated on an evolutionary, materialistic uh, worldview. And, and many of the values that are espoused in, 
in, in that whole series are just as anti-biblical as they can be. Nevertheless, you can still enjoy them at a certain level in terms of the action, in terms of the adventure, and, but you always have to think. You always have to think. You never stop thinking when you read fiction or you go to a movie or you watch a television show. If you do, you're just going to get sucked into whatever that human viewpoint thinking is. You always do. Same thing with Star Wars. I saw an interview on a PBS with George Lucas uh, a number of years ago where he specifically stated, and he's into Buddhism, and he specifically stated that he modeled uh, Yoda and the Jedi Knights on the uh, old uh, samurai warrior methodology of the Japanese and the samurai, uh, samurai warrior religious system. And he is using this framework of fiction and a science fiction movie as sort of a myth, a future mythology to teach the value system of, uh, of his religious system. Now here's a man who's, who is overt, and two different men who are overtly stating that they've got a religious agenda to their movies. Now, I don't see too many Christians just getting up in arms over that. Then Harry Potter comes along, and as far as I know from what I've read or studied so far, I don't see that J.K. Rowling has any kind of agenda like that. She's never made a statement like that, like either Roddenberry or George Lucas has. She's just exercising her imagination, and it's a lot of fun, and there's this, this magic in there that, notice, it never calls on some higher evil power. It never gets its source of power for some demon or Satan. Uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there. There's some ghosts, and there's some uh, uh, necromancy, and there's fortune-telling and all of that, which we don't agree with biblically. But, you know, we don't agree with a tremendous amount of stuff biblically that's in Hardy Boys. So just because there's stuff there that's not biblical, does that mean we throw everything out? No, I don't think so. It goes back to the principle of we can enjoy the creative products of a pagan culture with, because it reflects their use of their creativity as a, as a creature of God, creating God's image, without buying into the worldview that it espouses. And that's really what's going on here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, is because these people are afraid that if you go down, you go out to eat with somebody, you're invited over to somebody's house, and they've got a, you, they offer you a nice prime rib, and that nice prime rib was just sacrificed to Aphrodite that morning down at the temple, and that you're going to now eat this steak, and that means you're going, you're affirming everything that goes along with the fertility religions. And Paul's basic thought is that that's absolutely ridiculous to think that 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 entails, that eating the meat would entail that, that there's no ultimate reality behind the idols, even though it is influenced by demons. But you're not going to pick up a demon. You're not going to pick up paganism by doing that. But you have to realize that there are some people out there, some Christians out there, who can't handle that kind of freedom, that they're going to react and they're going to say, well, you shouldn't ever go to a movie. You should, I mean, if you're going to be consistent, don't just throw out Harry Potter. You better throw out Star Wars. You better throw out, oh, let's get rid of C.S. Lewis and Tolkien as well. Even though they were Christians, they, they operated in the realm of fantasy and it's not absolute objective reality. Then get rid of them too. Now, unfortunately, there are different people, and you have to, if you're one of these people, you have to recognize this. There are different personalities that are attracted to different things. Now, some of you like to read fiction. 
Some of you like to read romance novels. Now, I just can't understand that, but if you like that, that's fine. You have a, you have a freedom to do that. Uh, some of you like to watch soap operas, and once again, you know, you have the freedom to do that. I don't understand it. But see, there's also people who like to read fantasy. Now, I don't know. Maybe we could have a whole message on the difference between fantasy and soap operas. But see, you know, there are people, and then I know people who can't read fiction at all. I mean, they can't pick even pick up a fictional historical novel because, oh, the the writer used a little poetic license and shifted a couple of things just to make a just because he wanted to tell a better story, and they have to read. They can only read documented fiction, and they can only go to certain kinds of movies because other movies, well, there's a little poetic license there. And see, the element in fiction is a a a. a a willing suspension of disbelief. You, you, you put yourself in a mindset where you're just going to, you, you know, it's not real. You're not dealing with reality. You're dealing with something imaginative. Um, even a, a good 1940s war movie is certainly in the realm of imagination. And so we have to uh, understand these things and, and, and realize that different people like different things. But don't extrapolate from that universal principles of application telling everybody that, that, oh, this is demonic and this isn't. Frankly, the Bible says that all human viewpoint, all human viewpoint, whether it's the human viewpoint that is expressed in a 1940s war movie or whether it is the human viewpoint that expressed in Harry Potter or Star Wars, all human viewpoint is cosmic thinking and has its source in the devil. And this is the exact kind of situation that you've got here in Corinth, is that, except it's much more overt there and much more palpable because uh, what they're dealing with is just eating a steak that's been waved in front of an idol. And you've got people saying, oh, if you eat that good steak, you're going to pick up a demon and you're going to validate uh, everything in the system. So that's why you have to get into this, this system. And it all boils down to understanding grace orientation and flexibility in areas that the Bible does not specifically address. So before we can go much further, we're going to have to get into a doctrine of idolatry. And uh, I thought I would make it there this morning, but actually I thought I would make it there last Sunday morning. But we'll have to wait till next Sunday morning to uh, get into the doctrine of idolatry and an understanding of uh, demonism and idolatry, demonism and idolatry, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word that, that addresses every issue of life and teaches us how to think about life and how to think about life from your viewpoint. Father, above all, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your only begotten Son to die on the cross for us, that we were born sinners in rebellion against you, hostile to you, and yet... Even though we were at enmity with you, you demonstrated your love for us and sent your Son to die on the cross as a substitute for us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Salvation is not based on who we are or what we do. It's not based on ritual. It's not based on... Uh, making a moral bargain with God. It's not based on changing our behavior, changing our lifestyle. Salvation is not based on alignment with any particular church or
going through any particular ritual. Salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the issue is that Jesus Christ did all the work on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins, for all of sin and falls short of the glory of God, the Scripture says. And therefore, the penalty must be paid. Jesus Christ paid that penalty, so the issue now is not how you feel about sin. The issue is what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Do you accept him as your Savior or not? Do you trust him and him alone for your eternal salvation? Or are you trusting in him and something else or just trusting in something else? God the Father knows what you are trusting in for your salvation. And if your faith is alone in Christ alone, not accompanied by works, not faith plus being good, not faith plus ritual, not faith plus anything, but faith alone in Christ alone, then at the instant you believe in Christ alone, you have eternal salvation. Father, help us to understand the things that we have studied today. We pray that you would uh, use the teaching to clarify our own thinking. Help us to understand when we should exercise our freedom, when we shouldn't. Help us to use it to uh, think more clearly about what goes on in the world around us from a, a biblical viewpoint. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.